Morena, good morning. Um, thank you, Ange. What you just said about what Liz said yesterday was exactly what I was talking about. Yeah, so sit with that and see where it takes you. Well, last week I told you the story of Peter raising Tabitha from the dead. Tabitha, who was the merciful and kind presence among the believers in this little town of Joppa. When I was uh, a little kid, about three years old, my mum went through some major traumas. My father died of a heart attack, and it was obvious to her that my older brother John was quite seriously disabled, as even the local IHC day program was struggling to cope with his behaviours. Now, we happened to live two doors down from the Wanganui Home of Compassion, which was a, a, a Roman, do you have them down here? Roman, yep, see that nod? Roman Catholic uh, hospital run by the Sisters of Compassion that looked after chronically ill people. And one of the sisters there was named Sister Camellia. Somehow, I don't know, she and mum met and she took mum under her wing, even though we weren't Catholic. We weren't churchgoers. Later, we moved away to live in so that my brother John could attend a day program at Kimberley Hospital, which could cope with people of higher needs. It's a bit like Templeton was down here back in the day. And eventually, was committed and lived there permanently for the next 25 years. He's now in a, a community home in Levin. Now, Sister Camellia would pop in on us now and again through my childhood, usually unannounced, and she always brought me a little packet of these little toy animal things. You recognise those? Do I still have those? They were great. I used to love it when she'd come to see me and mum. Needless to so, say, she loved us, and we really loved her. Her love and care may well be why I'm Christian now. I don't know all the ins and outs of how that works, but she's certainly part of that story. And the wider church is full of saints like Tabitha. We've got them here. They truly are the hands and feet of Jesus. And if you are a Tabitha, quietly doing your thing in the background, know that Jesus sees you just as he saw Tabitha. Now that story ends with this throwaway comment in Acts 9.43, which says this, Meanwhile he, that's Peter, stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. Now, tanning is the business of skinning dead animals and make, making clothing and cushions and stuff from the, from the dried skins. It's hard work. It's smelly work, then and now. Even worse for a Jewish tanner, because in handling a dead body, you're immediately... Uh, ceremonially unclean 
So you can't take part in temple worship and all that sort of stuff until you go through the purification rite. Now, if you're knee-deep in dead animals for six days a week, that's your job. It's not terribly realistic. And it's still a thing today uh, for Jewish folk, but also for Indian people, where tanners are part of the untouchable caste. Because the dead animals that they're working with, well, may have been a human uh, in a previous incarnation who were on the slide, who were going down. A higher caste Indian would not shake hands with an untouchable and would certainly not eat food prepared by one. So it's curious to me that Peter stayed with Simon the Tanner who in Jewish society would have been regarded much like an untouchable wood today in Indian society. Now remember, Peter's still a good Jew at this stage of the story. We're told he stayed there for some time. We're not told how they knew each other. Doug has talked to us a few times about noticing what's going on for the people around us in our world. And I think the same could be said for noticing what's happening in Scripture when we read it. Paying particular attention to that which is surprising. And this little offhand comment is quite surprising. I'm going to come back to this. Meanwhile, in Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, stared at him in terror. Who can blame him? And said, what is it, Lord? He answered, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him, and after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, a bit of context to this. Caesarea was a town that the Romans had built primarily for other Romans. The Jews avoided going there if they possibly could, but clearly some lived there and they knew this remarkable Roman officer called Cornelius, who had been exposed to the light of the true God. And he'd been changed by that experience. He prayed to God, which, if you think about it at, at its heart, is an act of worship. And he was generous to people in need, which is what almsgiving is all about. The angel told him, his prayers and arms had risen to God as a memorial. Now, in the Old Testament, sacrificial system, a memorial offering was something that someone gave to God 
just because they wanted to. It wasn't a duty call, it wasn't required. Hence, it was burnt on the altar and the priest didn't get to eat it. Sucked to be them. But in this story, clearly God is working outside of his people. As Cornelius was not a Jewish convert, he might be hanging around the front door a bit, but he's never quite come in. He's not part of the people of God. And meanwhile, back at Joppa, about noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. I often get sleepy around about midday. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. And he heard a voice say, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. And the voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. And this happened three times. And the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. My guess is, at least initially, Peter thought this was some sort of test. He was being told to sate his hunger with these animals that he'd been brought up to see as forbidden because you weren't allowed to eat them because God's law said so. Now note that the voice doesn't get into a debate with him or justify itself. It just says, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. What on earth is God up to, do you think? Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. Called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up. Go down and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What, what is the reason for your coming? And they answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in, and gave them lodging. Now Peter's no fool. He clearly knows now that something is definitely up. And that both his experience and the centurion's experience have the fingerprints of God all over them. He's in a pincer move as God is sort of nudging each towards the other. But to what end? And again, that last sentence, so Peter invited them in and gave them lodging, looks like a throwaway line, but actually it's pretty significant. Peter invited these Gentile Roman soldiers to stay overnight with him, 
And presumably they also ate together. They shared table fellowship. Now Jews did not eat or cohabit with Gentiles, especially not those who were part of the military force occupying their country. Curious. Well, the next day, he got up and he went with them. And some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day, they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him get up saying, stand up, I'm only a mortal. And as he talked with them, he went in and he found that many had assembled and he said to them, now you yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now, may I ask why you sent for me? Peter joined the dots together. You see, some of those Old Testament food laws, say the one about not eating pork, I think was probably health-driven. Because in the good old days, pigs carried an awful lot of diseases. And so it wasn't a good idea to go munching on pork. It might be your last meal. But a lot of the prohibitions on eating some animals, I suspect, and Peter as well, the idea was to keep God's people apart from people who worshipped idols, from the Canaanite people. False gods. The food laws were sort of this marker between God's people Israel and the rest. Because God had a particular purpose for his people Israel, and he was trying to protect them. So the food laws belong in the same category as the don't marry an Assyrian kind of stuff. So Peter here, like Ange yesterday, listening to Les, has this aha moment. And he got the connection between the food and the people. God cares for all people, not just Jews. Now, verses 30 to 33, Cornelius retold the story of his vision to Peter. And Peter just got it. He saw what God's message to him was, that the gospel of the risen Jesus was for all nations, not just Jewish people. So he preached the gospel to this crowd of Roman Gentiles like this. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name that's pretty radical good news 
for a Gentile Roman from the God of the Jews. That the peace of God was available to everyone. Jew, Gentile, Kiwi, whatever. And Jesus' peace, well, it's to be reconciled to God. No longer separated or at odds with each other. And our lingo, to be saved, to be redeemed, whatever you want to call it. He digs into Jesus' story here in this presentation. Interestingly, following the narrative of Mark's gospel. And we think that Mark was Peter's disciple. So there was a connection. While Peter was still speaking, so he was still kind of doing his thing, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word, whoosh. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they invited him to stay for several days. Boom. The wall between Jew and Gentile comes down. At least for the first time. At least it's clearly God's plan. Again, speaking in tongues is the sign of the gospel and salvation going to this wider, to this new people group. Peter names it as being the same as the initial, as happened to the initial group at Pentecost. So presumably they too spoke in known languages. Truly a miracle was happening. Again, Peter, as the initial leader of the apostle, is prompted by God to break new ground. Then and now, this is the role of the apostle. And I think if you pull back to 10,000 feet and look down at this story, there's a really interesting sequence of events. Peter stays with a tanner. Then he welcomes Gentile soldiers to stay with them. Then he goes to Cornelius' house with them, and then he preaches and baptizes. This after previously having made Grecian Jewish people welcome in the church and Samaritans. It's like this cascade going on. God is molding Peter into being this apostle of grace, step by step. There'll be further steps next week when he addresses the opposition that he encounters when he gets back to Jerusalem. And again, a few years later at the Jerusalem Council. But take comfort from this, and I take a lot of comfort from this. He was not perfect. As a few years later, Paul recounts in Galatians how Peter wilted under criticism and withdrew from table fellowship with Gentiles. He's not some sort of superhero, he's got feet of clay just like you and I. Well, we've heard some of Peter's story and some of Cornelius' story here. But there's also God's story in play as well. God was starting to create a renewed people to God's self, made up of people from all sorts of nations, not just from Israel. God first announces his plan to Abraham in Genesis 10, 
that he would be a father to a people who would be more numerous than the sands on the, on the shore of the beach, so that's quite a few, more numerous than that, and he would be a blessing to everybody. The idea comes back through the Old Testament in quite a number of places. Isaiah 49, 6, that the Jewish folk would be a light to the nations. Jeremiah 1, 1 to 5, Jeremiah was a prophet to the whole world, not just the Jewish people. And then we leap forward to the New Testament, Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28, to his followers, to disciple who? Israel? Yeah, but much more. All nations, all of us. That's a great theory, but if you read through the New Testament, Paul's writings, including Galatians and Romans, they're fundamentally addressed to this question, how can Jews and Gentiles come together as God's people, and what about the other Jews who didn't accept Jesus? How can we be united? And the answer? Well, they're both saved by faith in the risen Lord Jesus. Their sins haven't been forgiven on the cross. A lot of those ideas seem to have come from this difficulty that they were having, and you can, and it's not hard to imagine it being difficult. Jews did not want to be in the same house as a Gentile, and they certainly didn't want to eat with them. And God says, well, my plan is you're all going to come together and get on like a happy, big happy family. Big challenge. Now, I am fond of citing John 17.20, which is the one place in the gospel where Jesus prays for us, those who would believe in him because of the testimony of his followers. And what does he pray for us? That we'd get everything right and our doctrine would be perfect? No. He prays that we would be one, that we would be united. And frankly, it's still a challenge today, and it will be until the whole thing gets wrapped up. I heard the story of this young Indian guy, high caste, Brahmin, priest, who became a believer in Jesus. A massive thing for him to do. Would have brought great shame to his family. Probably they would have disowned him. He joined this Christian fellowship made up of people from all stratas of Indian society. One day the young man came to church and it was a communion service being led by one of their number. But the leader of the communion service, the person distributing the bread and the wine, was an untouchable. Now in Hindu society, a Brahmin would not, and there's a Brahmin there on the left, would not eat food prepared by an untouchable. That would be something revolting to them. Now, while communion was being served, the young man didn't move. And the others, all in that culture, understood his predicament, wondered what was going to happen. And finally, at the end, he went up to the front and he received the bread and wine from the untouchable man. And the tension was broken and they embraced. And that, in our time is the strongest form of Christian unity that I can think of. Can we do that with the people that we struggle with? I um, 
loved seeing Doug and Jeff chatting up here a while back about how the Holy Spirit works from vastly different spaces. I found that inspiring. I'm part of a small group of Māori and Pākehā Baptist leaders trying to help the Baptist Union work out how, among other things, we're going to do race relations better. Challenging. I feel scarily out of my depth. Marva Dawn, one of my favourite writers, asked this, do we love each other enough to sing each other's songs? I think that's a great question. It was fun singing Power of the Blood, I haven't sung that for a long time. But it's a great question. Is there a Christian viewpoint, a Christian group, a type of Christian music, or a Christian church, or another individual Christian that you struggle with? I had a mate who um, was pastor of a church, and there were two people who, one sat over there and one sat over there. They'd had a tiff 25 years before and they hadn't spoken since. It takes a lot of planning to avoid each other in the same church and <laughs> doing that. Is there someone that you struggle with? What could you do about your attitude? Is there something for you to confess and see where God might lead you? My experience has been some of the best friendships I've had have had incredibly bad starts. I'll leave you with that thought. Amen. Could the musicians please come up? We're going to finish our service.